Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Kyle Myers, author of the book Raising Them, a memoir on her journey in gender-creative parenting and raising her child with the freedom to choose their own gender identity. We speak with Kyle today about raising her child, Zoomer Coyote, with her partner Brent and her hopes, challenges, and joys in rejecting societal gender norms and expectations and carving out her own path of parenting. Welcome, Kyle. Thank you. I thought that we might get started with just defining some of these terms, uh, because even though I've I've interviewed people um, in the past who were experts, more more of an expert than me, certainly, these terms keep changing and shifting, and I want to make sure mm-hmm. we're understanding what they are before we continue. So I actually saw, by the way, a really great meme that was kind of, I thought, a good summary of what the various elements of gender are in a body. Do you subscribe to the gender unicorn? Do you think that's accurate? That's the Mm. most up-to-date so far that I've found? Yeah, I think the gender unicorn is a really good tool, right? For like talking about the com- the complexity of all of these different components of gender. So yes, I'm I'm pro gender unicorn. Yes. I don't, <laughs> okay. So, you know, you use the word gender in your book a lot. And sometimes I feel like you might be referring to sex or sex assigned at birth. So could you just define what it means when you use the word gender? Sure. So when I am using the word gender, I am not talking about sex. I do talk about those things differently. So when I'm talking about sex, I'm talking about um, someone's anatomy and physiology and the sex that they might be assigned. And then when I'm talking about gender, I'm talking more about the norms or roles that maybe a culture tries to put on people's bodies. So I do think that there's some interplay between the words sex and gender often, but that's not the case for everybody, right? And so I also, when I'm talking about gender, I'm talking about someone's identity, like how they feel about themselves in their culture and their expression, how they are expressing their gender, their identity, kind of giving cues to, to people. So that tends to be the distinctions that I'm making between sex and gender. So your, your decision with your partner, Brent, to raise your child, Zoomer, with the choice of identifying their own gender, how did that come about? Well, I knew that I wanted to do gender creative parenting for a long time. When I was an undergraduate student, I was a gender studies major and you know taking a lot of classes and being exposed to a lot of this information and theories and news. And I had read some of the news stories that had come out about Sasha and Storm. Are you familiar with with those Mm -hmm, kids at all? mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was around like 2011, 2012. These two kids, Sasha in the UK and Storm in Canada, who were kids who hadn't been assigned a gender. And I read those news articles and felt 
like it really resonated with me. Like it, that made, that made sense to me. And I think it was because of kind of where I was at of thinking, you know, I know a lot of transgender people and intersex people and non-binary people whose parents got their gender assignment wrong. And I don't want to do that with my own kid. And then I also know a lot of people and a lot of cisgender people who are really frustrated by gender stereotypes, right? And how limiting they can be. And and so I just think I felt like I could probably raise a kid without relying on a gender binary, right? Like without assigning a gender to them and and giving in to like all of the stereotypes that our culture, you know, kind of perpetuates with, with boys and girls. So when I met my, my partner, my husband, Brent, um, and we were talking about starting a family, I was like, I, this is how I see myself parenting, doing this gender creative parenting. And this is what it means and all this. And he was on board immediately. And, you know, I mean, had some good logistical questions, you know, like what pronouns do we use? Who knows our babies? anatomy, you know, like, and so we had, you know, some of those conversations to have, but as far as like the philosophy of it, he was on board. And so it was just a very easy decision and a smooth decision and a non-contentious decision. And it was just decided. So when we got pregnant, like we already knew that that's what we were going to do. Prior to getting involved with Brent, had he, did he have any identification as a feminist? You know, did you know that kind of, did you pre-screen that he might be more open to <laughs> um, having uh, alignment with you in terms of parenting? Sure. I love that. Like, so I, I don't know that Brent would have like identified himself as a feminist until he like had met me. Right. And like, we kind of, you know, started like talking and, you know, giving each other, like, I think I gave him that label, not like, here's your label. You're going to be a feminist now. But I think because I so strongly, you know, am a feminist, I think he was like, oh yeah, for all of the same reasons you're a feminist, I believe in that. So I guess I'm a feminist too. Um, But for sure, I wanted to make sure that we were on the same page with a lot of values before we had a baby. And I think if Brent hadn't been on board, I don't think that we would have had a child together. I mean, it just, I felt that strongly and about having wanted to parent that way, you know? So, which I think is a totally okay thing for people to want out of a partnership, right? As these these like shared values, especially if having children is important to them. So the goal of gender creative parenting uh, is to help remove the gender binary sort of the socialization of the gender binary on a child and how people treat this child and what expectations they put upon this child. So can you talk about what they are that you wanted to remove from the equation? I think having, so I grew up in Utah, I still live in Utah, and the and I grew up in the United States, right? And we just have, especially since the 90s, we've become, well, at least the late 90s, early 2000s, childhood socialization is really hyper gendered. Like things have gotten more, the pink blue divide has gotten much wider in the last 20 years or so. And I just was watching it happen around me. I think so just like on a personal level, I was seeing how, 
you know, someone would find out the sex of their fetus while they were pregnant and then, you know, have a gender reveal party because they were going to assign a gender to this fetus based on their sex chromosomes or their genitals. And then I would just watch as the world or opportunities that were going to be given to this child would shrink to half. And I would watch as at a baby shower, everything is pink or everything is blue, you know, and just watch as children would only be described with certain adjectives, right? They were either tough or they were beautiful. And I just was watching this happen and it didn't sit well with me of like, why are we doing this? Why are we um, treating children who are so much more similar than they are different, right? Like, why are we creating these really um, significantly different paths for them? So I didn't, I didn't love it on a personal level, I guess. But then this was also happening in parallel with my studies. And I was in graduate school, you know, in a sociology program, and I studied population level health. And just time and time again, I would be reading these papers, these, you know, scientific studies about outcomes, whether it was like health outcomes or political outcomes or economic outcomes or whatever. And gender was this hugely significant variable, right? In like how people were having specific health outcomes or something like, were they a man? Were they a woman? Were they a trans? Were they cisgender? Were they transgender? Like just gender was such a big part of, right? the, The disparities that I was seeing in adulthood. And so I think I just started connecting the dots, you know, of like so much of what I'm seeing in adulthood gender inequities, like disordered eating among women, for example. And of course, there are men, you know, who also have disordered eating, but you could just see the links back to childhood of girls, you know, just being kind of socialized to think that their appearance is one of the most important things about them and and that they're constantly being called, you know, pretty or beautiful and the ways magazines and TV shows are marketing to them is like about clothes and hair, you know, and it was just and about thinness and so I guess I could just so clearly see like I'm reading these things about adulthood gender inequities and I can see the direct path back to like where it's getting its start in childhood. Like of course childhood gender socialization isn't to blame for adulthood gender inequities, but I could just see just the the machine, I guess, at work, you know, of like, this is all interconnected of like, we are perpetuating, we adults are perpetuating gender stereotypes and disparities onto kids. And so of course they're going growing up to have these types of outcomes. So I just thought maybe we could reinvent, you know, reinvent the way we treat kids and maybe we would be able to have some healthier, um, more equitable outcomes. So, you know, I want to turn to your experience as a graduate student. You said that you looked at a lot of studies, and um, in your book, you talked about gender being the most important predictor, you know, for social, economic, and political outcomes, like you were saying. And so that was a part, a point where I was not clear. Are are we talking about sex in those studies by, you know, like assigned at birth, Mm. or are we talking about gender? It's it's such a great question. And I know that like it can get confusing, right? Because to so many, like in these studies, no one is actually saying, okay, this is the sex of these participants. And then this is their gender identity, right? Like these, these concepts are so conflated with each other, especially in academic research, right? Like academic research has not caught up to the gender revolution and like kind of 
actually um, asking those types of questions, right? And so I think so many of these papers that I was reading, it would it would just say like males and females, right? And who like who who knows? Like, are they getting this information off of birth certificates or participants just self attesting? I don't know, but but. So when I'm talking about like gender in these things, I think it's much more about the socialization and not like because someone's anatomy, right? Like that's that's what I am seeing when I see these gender differences. I think a lot of people would call them sex differences, but it's because most people are assigned a binary gender at birth on top of, right, that like binary sex even though there are intersex people, even though there are non-binary people, right? Even though there are gender non-conforming people. So I hope that that helps clarify it, right? Like I wish that I actually knew what the, um, the researchers were actually asking the deeper questions, but so often they're not. Well, in our earlier in our series, we spoke with Lisa Sellen Davis, who came out with a book called Tomboy. And she provided a sort of cultural historical overview of how tomboyism has played out in in our history and society, and this concept that when people are trying to step outside gender traditional gender roles, it's either because they are embracing one, so in that case, you know, embracing traditional masculinity, or and or possibly rejecting the other, rejecting traditional femininity, and so to the extent that. One decides to raise a child and give that child the freedom to not be treated in a certain way with expectations by external people, society, family, teachers, etc. How does socialization of other children in that child's community and other adults impact that goal? I'm just mm-hmm. wondering because totally. is this is I'll put in you know air quotes experiment effective if not everybody else is participating? Don't we need everybody else to to do it too? (laughs) Yeah, no, that's such a great question. And I have like so many different thoughts about it. Sure, Zoomer's life would be so different. And I think their gender identity would be so different if we had just like scurried up into the woods and like lived in a cabin and we just, you know, didn't have screen time and never interacted with another person ever, right? Like that would look really different, obviously. But that's not our life. That's not our reality. It's what it's not what we want to do. We want like right, like we live here in in the U.S. in 2020, and so we're living with all of the forces of gender that every kid is being raised within. Right, like there's kind of this duality that can happen of like there's how I talk about gender and sexuality and experiences and everything with Zoomer in our home, right? Like kind of what I have control over, but then the buck stops when they go to school or when they turn on the TV, right? Or we're like in Target and I've just had to surrender to that, right? Like I get, you know, like, wouldn't it be great if everybody was doing this? And I was like, yes, it wouldn't that be great? That's a bit utopian and that well, that's not going to happen in my lifetime, right? But also there are some variables that have come into play that really help us out in that, we live in a progressive city, right? Like we have a lot of privilege and resources and we're able to afford to send Zoomer to schools, right? That kind of have a, a general philosophy that aligns with ours or where other progressive parents are taking their kids. So I do think we are surrounded by some people who have a lot of the same shared goals with us. And I love that, right? I feel really fortunate to have that. But for sure, it is a constant tug of war between like me 
and everything else. And I am, you know, I have to kind of provide counter narration to the shows that we watch on TV that are super binary gender stereotype, right? right? Because there's just like not enough gender creative kids media, right? Or I'll read a book and notice that, and there's studies that show this, right? Like, like they looked at all the kids' books of like a hundred years and just predominantly boys are the focus of it, right? And and like he, him pronouns. And so I'll try to switch it up and use she, her pronouns or they, them pronouns for characters in kids' books too, to just kind of give a mix. And in the meantime, also trying to unlearn my own sexist beliefs, right? Like I was steeped in this culture too growing up and still so. It's um, it's just a constant commitment to try to teach Zoomer a perspective that is different than the one that I grew up in and is different than the perspective that our mainstream culture is socializing most kids in. How has this manifest in your goals towards, well, I don't know if it, it's individual, but also societal in hoping that Zoomer you know, can be protected or free from those external expectations, right? Like, mm-hmm. how has it worked out? Because Zoomers watching their playmates, girl who identify as girls and boys, mm-hmm. being gender policed. <laughs> I mean, not that I'm saying that your your friends are like that, but there's probably some level of that unconsciously. And Zoomer is taking those messages in, even though it doesn't apply to Zoomer, it applies to other people. How do you protect Zoomer from not letting that become an internalized message? Totally. That's, I, that's a great question. And I wish that I could protect them from it becoming an internalized message, but I understand that I cannot, or, you know, right? Like I don't have, I was able to, what gender creative parenting did now that Zoomer's four and a half and like, and is starting to identify with the gender and claiming some pronouns and is learning, right? Like is learning how their peers think about gender. But I think that by being so committed to gender creative parenting still today, I'm still committed to it, right? Like even if Zoomer identifies with a gender or is like cisgender, I'm not going to be like, okay, and like throw in the towel and start stereotyping them, right? So, but what gender creative parenting did is it did kind of create a little bit of a bubble around Zoomer for a few years that was really beautiful of teaching them like a inclusive vocabulary, right? And kind of giving them all of these options. And so they didn't start to like categorize like specific colors are for these people, specific clothing are for these people, right? But then as they became more cognitive and more verbal around, you know, three and a half, like three, three and a half, four, I I watched as like, oh, I'm losing my, I'm losing my influence on this. Um, But something that has been a a perk, I guess, of being able to watch is I'm sure Zoomer gets policed a little, right? right? Like like Zoomer is getting policed. And sometimes it was all over the place, depending on how kids were reading them, you know, whether whether or not they knew what Zoomer's body looked like or whether or not Zoomer had told them their gender, they they would be policed, whether it was because of what they were wearing or their hair or what they were playing with. But the good news has been that I remember one of their preschool teachers saying, I just want to let you know that there is a lot of like policing happening in our classroom right now, you know, with like little kids saying like, you can't do that. That's for boys. You can't do that. That's for girls. And the teacher told me, 
but I want to let you know that Zoomer doesn't say those things, you know? And it was like, well, that felt good, right? Like who knows? Zoomer could be saying those types of things now at preschool, you know, because they're, they're with their little friends so much. And, but it felt good to feel like, okay, I delayed this, you know, like if, like, could I, could I protect them forever? No, but I, it worked in delaying it. And I do think that that's really important in how their brains are forming, right? Like so many of the stereotypes that we hold and the biases that we hold, we really learn young. And so I'm hoping that like, maybe I was able to like buffer some of that edge off, you know, like, so knowing, no, we don't live in some like gender utopia, right? Like we live in Salt Lake City, (laughs) but, but we were able to kind of put like a, a, a different layer in between, right? Like the main culture. Maybe this analogy might resonate. I feel like society puts on layers of clothing on us and that we have to kind of unpeel or onions, if you want to use the onion analogy. Um, we have to undo later. And so maybe Zumra has just fewer burdens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And therefore that makes it easier to access Zoomer's authentic self. Whereas it's, you know, it takes us, so many of us, years, decades <laughs> with therapy yeah. and other stuff to try to yeah. you know, get to that. that. I love that. And I, and I hope so. And I think that, but something that I am seeing, you know, is like, I do feel like I got to see like a glimpse of Zoomer's authentic self in a way that would have been different if I might've assigned a gender, right? Or might've just been like, oh yeah, let's like lob it on. Let's lob on the binary stereotypes. But watching that authentic identity and expression be chipped away now is really sad. You, you know, you know, of like, oh gosh, like someone at school is going to tell you that you shouldn't wear that or that you shouldn't like that or that, you know, and that's really devastating, <laughs> you know? I mean, but, but, but I do think that I'm in a, I'm parenting in a good time, you know, in a good place. Like we've had a huge shift in how we think about gender, right? And I think that you don't have to do gender creative parenting to have these types of values. So how has your gender creative parenting impacted and shifted the people in your around you, your friends and family, and how they view and treat other people, not just Zoomer? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that we've had a really positive impact. I mean, in ways that I've been able to see like my parents use they, them pronouns for people who they don't know their pronouns, right? Like to be able to kind of like get into that habit of like, you know, I don't know your pronouns and I'm not going to assume them. I'll just wait until you tell me what they are and like that kind of stuff. Or even just language changes because I try to model that so much of like seeing people replace gendered terms that are totally unnecessarily gendered, like fireman or mailman and like saying firefighter or mail carrier. I, I, I see this like this language shift happen around me, whether it's like my family or friends or the preschool teachers and stuff. And I think that's really cool. But even just like the explicit compliments to kids who are gender bending, right? Like the explicit compliment to the little boy whose fingernails are painted, the explicit compliment to the little girl who just, you know, got her hair cut really short, you know, like, or the explicit non-sexualizing of kids, right? Like just kind of being like, you know what, let's not matchmake right now with these two-year-olds, you know, like let's not presume heterosexuality onto them. And, and, and so I just think that there's been this 
gossamer, you know, you know, or, you know of an influence or, or from from us that people are just able to incorporate a lot of these practices, you know, and it's, you know, I mean, whether like, I of course think they're good, right. I don't want to put the total value judgment of like, and shouldn't everybody think this is great? Cause I know people are different than me, but I mean, I've even had friends who've chosen to do gender creative parenting because of us, you know, and that feels really powerful or, or for people who are like, I'm not going to go as far as you, but I'm maybe I'll throw in some they, them pronouns for my kid, you, you know, just like hold more space for the possibility that my kid might not be cisgender. Was this a big shift for them? Like, cause they're, you know, you grew up Mormon in Utah. So that's a culture. I mean, in general, the church is known for being, you know, a very strict gender enforcer. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It, that's true. So I'm, I'm pretty lucky that my family, like my family left the church when, when I was like nine, 10 years old. And so even though we have still remained in this community and, you know, are, of course are influenced by this culture, I think my, my family has been like very open-minded about it. And also, I mean, I tell a lot of people like, it's not like when I became pregnant was the first time when I started talking about gender with like my family, right? Like, I had been on the I have been on the feminist train for a long time, you know, a long time. And so I think that they were already really well primed. Okay. You know, when you were talking, I just I was thinking about when I talk about gender and sex issues, I always in you know, from an intersectional lens, I'm always trying to use different forms of identity construction to create analogies for people who might not understand or appreciate the construction with gender. And so like, for example, you know, in Black Lives Matter, the post-George Floyd protest, there's been a lot of discussion around, you know, obviously anti-racism, incorporating anti-racism practices and organizations into not just explicitly nonprofits and social justice organizations, but a lot of publicly traded organizations have Mm -hmm. committed to that as well. And I'm, I'm always trying to like, at, oh, what about the sex part? You know, can we also mm-hmm. do anti-sexism training, mm. you know, blah, 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 especially in spaces where I'm working in domestic violence advocacy, you would expect that all, all those people who are serving uh, victims would have that um, training and, and um, interrogation tool, right? Self-interrogation tool. And so when you talk about gender, and I, and I kind of flip it back to race, I think about how we live in a racist society and how parents of black children have the talk in, mm-hmm. in air quotes with their kids about being able to, they raise their kids, hopefully proud of their identity, but also prepare them for the racism of society. Right. If we were to look at gender creative parenting from that angle, like how would you compare the benefits and downsides of gender creative parenting from just raising your child of whatever gender or sex to be able to be accepting of who they are, but in an explicit way, so that they're explicitly kind of rejecting societal norms. Mm -hmm. Because you were talking, when you used the word bubble, it made it feel a little bit like privilege, because Mm. you could hide with gender that you can't so Mm. much with race. Mm-hmm. And how does that fit into the overall effort of advancing 
something structurally. Great, great comments and thoughts there. So I will try to work my way through some of some of these thoughts of, that I was having while you were talking. The first is that I think that we should, because of like intersectionality, I think like, why aren't we having anti, like, how is there not anti-sexist conversations with anti-racist conversations, right? Like, there is a very big difference between the experiences of black men and white men and black women and white women and trans women of color, right? Like, so I, I'm with you on that of like, I think that this anti-racism, incredible reckoning that is happening right now and awareness that is happening right now actually really lends itself to like building a framework to, you know, to also discuss anti-sexism. But I think that all of these things have to be being talked about at the same time. We have to be talking about anti-racism with anti-sexism with, within like classism within all of this. And so I actually think that some of the same conversations that I'm having with Zoomer about anti-racism, I also have those types of conversations with them about anti-sexism. And so like we talk about like skin color and we talk about privilege and we talk about police brutality and and I am a white person raising a white child but that doesn't mean that we don't have to also have the talk about police brutality and about right because I don't want my white child growing up thinking that like police can do no wrong I get that what like our lived experiences are incredibly different, but I think it's absolutely upon white people to be moving the conversation forward of anti-racism, right? Like it's not on people of color to fix racism. Absolutely not, right? So so I think that those same things work within like the anti-sexist framework too. And I mean, I think it's, while it's wonderful that people are like finally recognizing that America is there's a white supremacist, you know, culture here. Like, I don't think that they've woken up to the fact that we also are like as much of a patriarchal culture or a misogynistic culture because it's just, it feels even just like people love thinking gender and gender differences are natural, right? And like have nothing to do with like what we, how we've created it in our culture. So I would like to see more people be outraged, just like they're outraged about racism, to also be outraged about sexism and not that this is like a competition of two movements. They're completely interrelated. So I would love to see more people being outraged and wanting to have these conversations with their kids and unlearn racism and unlearn sexism. And to respond to your comment of like, you know, it kind of sounds like you've like raised your kid in this like privileged bubble for three years. And I I hear you on that and just want to kind of put in my two cents there of it's not like it was like a gender blind, right? Like bubble. We, I just was able to be the biggest influence on them. And so I was actually able to talk a lot about ableism and sexism and racism and classism and xenophobia so much with Zoomer you know, in a way that that wasn't presenting it like, okay, you're going to meet some people who think this, right? Like I was able to just take away the stereotypes for, for about three years, if that makes sense. So like, so do counter stereotypes for three years of like, 
that person uses a wheelchair. Isn't that so awesome? How are like, we all have these different bodies, right? And, and, you know, that person, they have like such beautiful dark brown skin. Isn't it so cool how we all have, you know, like it was just more like diversity building, I think, without trying to like set humans up in like these like binary contrast ways with them. And so, so, so then after this bubble broke, right. And it was like, oh, like there's explicit racism, explicit sexism, explicit classism, ableism that Zoomer is picking up on from these other things around them. Right. And like, and and that's not to say that like, I'm free of all these isms, but have just been really trying to consciously teach Zoomer about them early in a more like celebratory way though. Right. Like instead of like, we're just avoiding this conversation until we have to have it. I think we were leaning into the conversation in that few years, but just trying to counter stereotypes in it. Right. Like if that makes sense. Yeah, no, because I was thinking about if someone, a family of color choosing gender creative parenting would have so many more challenges. Mm. I just was thinking about whether this is a way to hide sort of that or delay it or where it fits Mm. in. That's a question Mm -hmm. that I'm Mm -hmm. asking myself when you're talking. Because I'll just give you another example. Like you talked about as a uh, sociologist, you talked about being at some point in the book, being grateful for data to be collected based on sex assigned at birth. Right. And you, you specifically stated that it would, it would be helpful to monitor sex differences at birth and sex ratios of infant mortality. But then looking at an equal rights amendment kind of perspective, like obviously there's a lot more benefits because violence against women, those kinds of rates mm-hmm. would be helpful. And there's, uh, I'm, I'm sure you know, <laughs> you know, uh, lots of discussion in the feminist circles around conflating gender and sex in different ways. Um, and some people believe that, you know, the erasure of sex can, before we've obtained rights, sex-based rights is harmful. And for me, like, I think we should be post-gender, et cetera, once we've gotten to that point of protection. Mm -hmm. And if we Mm -hmm. haven't, then it kind of Mm -hmm. keeps us from getting there. Um, And so I'm wondering how you feel about that. I I agree with you. I, and, and I think it's complicated, right? Like, of course, isn't it, isn't it, wouldn't it be great to think that like we could be post all of these markers, you know, but we are not. And if we are not post these markers and we aren't collecting these markers, how do we monitor, you you know, like the disparities and, and while holding, like while holding space for the fact, like the way that we're collecting markers right now are erasing a lot of people and are causing harm to a lot of people, right? Like in Utah, when I had to fill out Zoomer's birth certificate, there was no option for intersex. It was just, is this baby male or female? And it was like, sheesh, that like that didn't sit well with, you know, with, with me, like, of course there are intersex people in Utah. Of course there are intersex babies born in Utah every year. And we're not tracking that. And so that just lends itself to this intersex erasure. Right. And then of course, like when there's issues of people not being able to get these government documents changed to reflect 
who they are, right? Like, because the government or whatever is blocking them from changing their driver's license or, you know, and that, that, that causes so much harm to be going through airport security and you are a woman, but your passport says male, right? And it's just like these, we, 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 we really do need to work through, like, what are we actually trying to achieve here? But I am with you in that as much as I wish we were beyond it, I don't think that I know that we aren't, you know, and, and I, and I'm completely with you that there's so much structural violence against people in like the sex-based way or gender-based way. And, you know, both sometimes, and I just, I, I would be afraid that if we, if we weren't able to track that, how could we fix it? Well, I mean, this, this isn't your burden to hold, but I'm just going to ask you what your theory, what your thoughts are, because obviously your choice of gender creative parenting helps your family, but I love to know what we can do to help address how other people, <laughs> how, how adults who are choosing to parent now, how they are creating harm in putting on very strict gender roles onto their children. Um, I mean, obviously, because what you're doing is out there, and it doesn't really affect other people, other society, mm. in the rest of society, other than your community in some ways. Um, I mean, mm. it, it affects society in terms of the awareness of bringing up these conversations, but I'm not sure that those people who most need to be targeted, mm-hmm. who are creating the most harm on their kids, mm-hmm. the um, stereotypical sports father who's on the sidelines yelling at their son because they didn't make a home run or whatever, like the ones that make you cringe in the movies, right? You're like, mm-hmm. oh my God, what is this child mm-hmm. going to grow up and how much pain is this child in? How can we address those people? Mm. And it's not your burden. I just want to say, I'm sorry, (laughs) but I am just like, I I don't know, right? (laughs) No, I know. And I I, I hear you. And I wonder, I think it's part of like, right? Like I could have definitely chosen to just be like, no, we're going to parent this way and live our life. And we're going to stay completely under the radar. But we did make a decision to go, you know, we're going to like surrender our anonymity and put ourselves out there, right? Like it's not all in our personal life. It's, it's really wonderful and affirming being out as like a gender creative parenting advocate. I mean, I just get so, you you know, like I, I get a lot of people who are very unhappy with what I have to say, you know, and what, you know, what I'm advocating for that said, that has gone down a lot over the time that I've been a public advocate over the last four years. Like I do think there's kind of this like cultural zeitgeist happening and it helps that I'm out here putting resources out and that there's so many different people putting resources out, right? There are a lot of people who are doing gender creative parenting who are advocating for it now. And there are people of color, trans people, right? Like, and lower income people, people who have fewer resources, people who don't have families who are as supportive as ours. So I actually think that there's a really diverse like set of stories that's coming out about gender creative parenting that I think is really helpful. And not only is it having an impact in each of our communities, right? But like, and then it's in the LA Times because Jay and Miguel did a story, you know? And so like that buzz is happening. I, I think there's just these drips happening all over the place. And whether it's like, okay, maybe someone reads something that I was interviewed for, or someone listens to this podcast, or a TV show takes the 
you know, like makes the decision to show a father son relationship where he doesn't care that his son isn't involved in sports, right? Like there's just, whether it's the media or how people are talking about it or like celebrities that people admire. Like, I think that the five years ago, I mean, like, of course, like people have always been talking about stuff like this, but I've been teaching gender and sexuality for, for years. I mean, gosh, eight, nine years. And even just watching the exponential growth in how people are talking about this and like the awareness, right. Of masculinity, you know, and like, maybe we could reinvent this a a bit, a bit, you know, and I think that masculinity is being reinvented a lot and looks really different, you know, from like mainstream acceptability of what we should be striving for than it did even like five or 10 years ago. So Yes, by all means, I wish that I could help, you know, like each individual like boy who is being like bullied by his dad, but it's like, I can't. And I'm just hoping though that the drip just is becoming more constant. I just think even in my time of doing like teaching about this, kind of advocating about this, I've seen more people talking about this. Like even like like I listened to your interview with Lisa and I was just like, we're, we're speaking the same, you know, message, you, you know, like in a lot of ways, I think that there are so many more people advocating for this. I think that there have been a lot of foundational blocks that have been set that people are having a bigger, like a, a bigger conversation about this. But I, I just think that there were these slower drips but I think that more people are contributing, right? And more people are open to receiving and more people are open to making policy changes and, and interpersonal changes, right? Like, like this oppression happens on so many levels, right? Like, like th- this, this happens. I mean, the way I, I heard about, you know, these like four levels of oppression was, was talking about systemic racism, like the ideological level, the institutional level, the interpersonal level and the internal, like internalized level. Right. And I think that that happens for all oppressions. Right. And so that framework is useful, I think, for thinking about this, for like gender disparities too. And like, we're seeing it like the Me Too movement happening. Right. And like so much more policies being put in place and like zero tolerance for people who are abusers or hurt, like in, in, you know, these workspaces, like it's just, it's, it's happening more than it, than it was such a short time ago. So on the institutional level, Lisa had talked about how corporations created this pink and blue divide so they could make more money, right? Sell yeah. more products. Don't they but suck? I, I yeah. never really understood that because even if you just had one gender neutral set of colors, it's not like parents are going to buy fewer things. They're still going to buy the same thing. It's just going to be different colors. No? I mean, I so, didn't, I, so why can't, yeah. like, what can we do to put pressure on toy manufacturers and clothing companies to have more gender neutral options for us and, mm-hmm. and, and still st- sell? Because I don't see how they would sell less. Totally sure. <laughs> so there's this, there's this, there's a sociologist, her name's Elizabeth Sweet, and she studies like toys and gender. And her research is so fascinating. She was looking at, I think it was for her dissertation, she was looking at the Sears catalog, just like one catalog, right? And just looking at the toys. And what was happening is I think she went, I don't know if she went from like the 60s or something up until like the 2000s. 
And she was saying like, when you would look at the catalog in like the seventies, there would be like a workbench and there would be like a kitchen set. And those things weren't being marketed. Like the workbench wasn't being marketed to the boy and the the kitchen set wasn't being marketed to the girl. You would actually, you would see a boy and a girl working at the workbench and a boy and a girl working at the kitchen set or whatever. Right. And then you just, she's like, as, as you're going through the years though, you see the color pattern move a little, you know, more away from like red, blue and yellow and, you know, wood or whatever into this more like pink, blue, and like also like the themes of what they're kind of selling, right? Like the weapons, you know, that are happening and the the like cosmetics that are happening and how we have just so much more media now, right? Like TV shows and characters and movies. And and then all of those, of course, come with their Lego set and clothes and bed sheets and everything. And so it's just, we're like hyper consumers too, right? And, And one of the things that has happened that I think Lisa gets at or, you know, is trying to like convey is that, that, because of this gender divide and because things are so hypergendered, like these, these products that we buy for babies and kids, we will see, for example, like, okay, like we're having a boy and we buy all these boy clothes and we buy the boy stroller and we buy the boy bed sheets and everything. And then our second kid is coming and we're having a girl. Oh my heck, we need to buy the girl bed sheets and the girl clothes and the girl car seat instead of just using her older brothers. You know, like, so like that's one of the things that's, that's kind of a shift that's happened. And I think it's part, like it's partly because of gender. And it's also partly because we just like, we buy a lot of stuff. Right. And it's partly because things aren't made as high quality as they used to be. Right. Like I even look around at Zoomers toys and I'm like, oh, I hate that. Like, we just have these like crappy plastic toys, you know, like we don't have like the amazing like wooden <laughs> toys that have been like passed down as heirlooms or, you know, or whatever. So I think there's a lot going on uh, on there, but I agree with you that I think, and I think it's starting to happen. I think that if brands, and I think it's because a lot of millennial parents want this for their kids, just make clothes, just make toys, right? That like you know, that are on these, that are teaching kids these skills that we want all kids to have, like, like um, emotional intelligence and spatial skills. Right. And then, then you can sell them to all types of kids. Right. And so I, I agree that I think that if stores didn't divide themselves up by like, okay, the boys shop here and the girls shop here. And it was just like, here's the clothes, take what you want. I, I think that they would sell more too, because I think people would you know, not that I'm like, so let's sell more, let's buy more. But I do think that people, if we weren't making such a divide and it wasn't like you get this half and you get this half, but if instead we were like, you get all of this. Yeah. um, They would sell double actually, because the the child would get the workbench and the kitchen set. Exactly. 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 (laughs) Agreed. So in this journey um, of parenthood, what are your, the, the biggest surprises that you've had in terms of your own changes in your relationship with Brent, for example, and in Zoomer's development? So I think I had, I thought I, I would say that since becoming Zoomer's parent, I have turned inwards more like on like my own interrogation of my own socialization and like my own habits and, you know, like my own gender identity and expression. I have turned inward on it more in the last four years of being their parent than I had in the 30, you know, 30 years before becoming their parent. And 
I'm grateful for that. And I think that that, that, I mean, it was a surprise, right? I didn't, I didn't expect to go from, from, you know, having this like cisgender woman identity five years ago when I was pregnant to like that really cracking open, you know? And I think part of that happened because I was teaching my kid, like, I want you to think about gender beyond these binaries. I want you to have like limitless ideas about what people are capable of, you know, and it's hard to say that and not listen to it. (laughs) So I think that even though I did feel, you know, like I was a, I was a good feminist or whatever, I feel like, um, I started like going to work on myself. And I think that that was a really good thing. Um, I think with Brent and I, we were very committed from the start of trying to like blow the lid off of a lot of gender norms within our marriage. And we're really committed to equally sharing parenting. Right. And I think that that's why the, the term parenthood resonates with me so much more than motherhood. And I think part of it, like, and it's, and I, and it doesn't come from this like femphobia type of thing. It, it, it just really comes from like, I truly feel really equal with, with Brent and what we bring to parenthood, you know, that we equally share grocery shopping. We equally share getting Zoomer ready for school. We equally share bringing income into our household. Like it feels really egalitarian. And it makes me feel for a lot of women, most often, who are burdened with so much of this like life admin, right? Of like, and it's so true that um, is it the second shift, the third shift? You know, it's like you come home and then you've got to take care of your kids, and oh, and then the third shift is like, and you also got to like look really pretty doing it or whatever, you know, whatever it is. Like, make sure you're staying at the <laughs> there, gym or whatever. There's no shifts these days with everybody being at home working twenty four seven. Yeah, but even that, <laughs> I feel even like that, right, <laughs> to- totally. But even that, women, like especially like in these like you know cisgender hetero couples, women are totally carrying a huge. Like I think collectively a bigger burden than a lot of men are, whether it's like they're the ones who are helping their kids get on Zoom for their second grade classes or, you know, and and cooking like the motherhood penalty is so, so real. And this pandemic is exacerbating it. And it is (sighs) women's progress, like in the workplace is going to is going to take is has already taken a really big hit and it is going to be it's going to take some time to recover from. When you were talking about progress we made earlier, I, I was just, I, I guess I'm so focused on what's in front of me, which is the horrific Kyle Rittenhouses and, and those, those folks who, who's uh, taking up a lot of the space in the, in the cultural narrative around what gender looks like. It's really disheartening yeah, to know how to address that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's not that's for a different discussion. Mm-hmm. No, no, but they're they're but it's related, right? Like like that's so related of like we don't buy weapons for right. Zoomer, you know, right. and I don't think weapons I don't think weapons belong in like preschool kids play. I don't think that we should be trying to like play with weapons. Like that is so bizarre to me and like we don't watch kids shows, right? Like like the way we kind of you know decide what kind of show we're going to watch is like are they teaching you to be a good friend, right? Like, are they, and there's so much violence in 
kids media and these pressures of masculinity, you know, that are in a lot of these homes. And also, I mean, just the rhetoric that is happening right there around politics, you know, and around race and around like property and uh, it's not, not related. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, it's, not related to the extent that we're not going to be able to solve the problem in this conversation. Oh, gosh, no. Oh, gosh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Although no. I would love to. Yeah. Yeah. But um, we've come to the point of every conversation where we ask each guest a series of questions I call the engendered questionnaire. Okay, great. And the first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? so many people's lives and ability to live vibrant, authentic, healthy lives. Everything is at stake, Terry. I, just... I already know what you're going to say to this probably, but I'm going to ask you anyway. What gives you hope? I genuinely feel like we're moving in the right direction. Honestly, gen generation alpha and generations like the, the younger generations are giving me a lot of hope. Um, yeah, I, I I just find so much hope in like how exponential our progress has been, even though it is not fast enough for, for my liking. I really think that there's some attention on this on gender, you know, that there just hasn't been before, and that and it gives me hope. And final question. What can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? I think that we can have more acceptance of people who are different than us or the ideas of gender that we, that we grew up with. And I think we could do less assuming about people, like summing people up based on um, you know, gender biases and stereotypes. What we could start doing is... I don't know, looking inward, right? And like seeing what we could, like starting with ourselves of like, what biases do I have? Learning about those, leaning into that discomfort. I think that like recognize, uh, acknowledging that you have bias is a really good place to start, right? And then it helps you learn more about it and, and practice doing better. So start with yourself and stop believing that gender is a harmless binary, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, I get that it works for a lot of people, but it is not working for also a lot of people. Or maybe how much we think it's working for us, like, is a bit of a facade. Well, thank you so much, Kyle. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And I look forward to keeping up with how Zoomers progressing and in entry into grade school, full-time school, especially under COVID. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.